following tale has some language and descriptions that may offend some listeners. While it's true that Lovecraft wrote some regrettably racist and isolationist views, we have chosen not to change his language and his writing. And while we recognise his flaws as a human being, we also recognise and enjoy his imagination and storytelling. We at The Darkest Page do not agree with Lovecraft's racist views or his isolationist stance. Please enjoy The Horror at Red Hook. This is the Darkest Page Podcast. One. Not many weeks ago, on a street corner in the village of Pascoe, Rhode Island, a tall, heavily built, and wholesome looking pedestrian furnished much speculation by a singular lapse of behaviour. He had, it appears, been descending the hill by the road from Chepechet, and encountering the compact section, had turned to his left into the main thoroughfare where several modest business blocks convey a touch of the urban. At this point, without visible provocation, he committed his astonishing lapse, staring queerly for a second at the tallest of the buildings before him, and then, with a series of terrified, hysterical shrieks, breaking into a frantic run which ended in a stumble and fall at the next crossing. Picked up and dusted off by ready hands, he was found to be conscious, organically unhurt, and evidently cured of his sudden nervous attack. He muttered some shame-faced explanations involving a strain he had undergone, and with downcast glance, turned back up the Chapachet Road trudging out of sight without once looking behind him. It was a strange incident to befall so large, robust, normal-featured and capable-looking a man, and the strangeness was not lessened by the remarks of a bystander who had recognised him as the boarder of a well-known dairyman on the outskirts of Chapachet. He was, it developed, a New York police detective named Thomas F. Malone now on a long leave of absence under medical treatment after some disproportionately arduous work on a gruesome local case, which accidents had made dramatic. There had been a collapse of several old brick buildings during a raid in which he had shared, and something about the wholesale loss of life, both of prisoners and of his companions, had peculiarly appalled him. As a result, he had acquired an acute, and anomalous horror of any buildings even remotely suggesting the ones which had fallen in, so that in the end, mental specialties forbade him the sight of such things for an indefinite period. A police surgeon with relatives in Chepechet had put forward that quaint hamlet of wooden colonial houses as an ideal spot for the psychological convalescence, and hither the sufferer had gone, promising never to venture among the brick-lined streets of larger villages till duly advised by the wound socket specialist 
with whom he was put in touch. This walk to Pascode for magazines had been a mistake, and the patient had paid in fright, bruises, and humiliation for his disobedience. So much the gossips of Shepeshay and Pascogue knew, and so much also the most learned specialists believed. But Malone had at first told the specialist much more, ceasing only when he saw that utter incredulity was his portion. Thereafter, he held his peace, protesting not at all when it was generally agreed that the collapse of certain squalid brick houses in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn and the consequent death of many brave officers had unseated his nervous equilibrium. He had worked too hard, all said, in trying to clean up those nests of disorder and violence. Certain features were shocking enough, in all conscience, and the unexpected tragedy was the last straw. This was a simple explanation which everyone could understand, and because Malone was not a simple person, he perceived that he had better let it suffice. To hint to unimaginative people of a horror beyond all human conception, a horror of houses and blocks and cities leprous and cancerous with evil dragged from elder worlds, must be merely to invite a padded cell instead of restful rustication and Malone was a man of sense despite his mysticism. He had the Celt's far vision of weird and hidden things, but the logician's quirk eye for the outwardly unconvincing, an amalgam which had led him far afield in the forty-two years of his life, and set him in strange places for a Dublin University man born in a Georgian villa near Phoenix Park. And now, as he reviewed the things he had seen and felt and apprehended, Malone was content to keep unshared the secret of what could reduce a dauntless fighter to a quivering neurotic. What could make old bricks slums and seas of dark, subtle faces a thing of nightmare and eldritch portent? It would not be the first time his sensations had been forced to bide uninterpreted, for was not his very act of plunging into the polygot abyss of New York's underworld a freak beyond sensible explanation? What could he tell the prosaic of the antique witcheries and grotesque marvels discernible to sensitive eyes amidst the poisoned cauldron where all the varied dregs of unwholesome ages mix their venom and perpetrate their obscene terrors? He had seen the hellish green flame of secret wonder in this blatant, evasive welter of outward greed and inward blasphemy and had smiled gently when all the New Yorkers he knew scoffed at his experiment in police work. They had been very witty and cynical, deriding his fantastic pursuit of unknowable mysteries, and assuring him that in these days New York held nothing but cheapness and vulgarity. One of them had wagered him a heavy sum that he could not, despite many poignant things to his credit in the Dublin Review, even write a truly interesting story of New York lowlife. And now, looking back, he perceived that cosmic irony had justified the prophet's words, while secretly confuting their flippant meaning. The horror, as glimpsed at last, could not make a story, for like the book cited by Poe's German authority, Es lacht sich nicht lesen, it does not permit itself to be read.
too. To Malone, the sense of latent mystery in existence was always present. In youth he had felt the hidden beauty and ecstasy of things, and had been a poet, but poverty and sorrow and exile had turned his gaze in darker directions, and he had thrilled at the imputations of evil in the world around. Daily life had for him come to a phantasmagoria of macabre shadow studies, now glittering and leering with concealed rottenness, as in Beardsley's best manner, now hinting terrors behind the commonest shapes and objects, as in the subtler and less obvious work of Gustave Doré. He would often regard it as merciful that most persons of high intelligence jeer at the inmost mysteries. For he argued, if superior minds were ever placed in fullest contact with the secrets preserved by ancient and lowly cults, the resultant abnormalities would soon not only wreck the world, but threaten the very integrity of the universe. All this reflection was no doubt morbid, but keen logic and a deep sense of humour ably offset it. Malone was satisfied to let his notions remain as half-spied and forbidden visions to be lightly played with, and hysteria came only when duty flung him into a hell of revelation too sudden and insidious to escape. He had for some time been detailed to the Butler Street station in Brooklyn when the Red Hook matter came to his notice. Red Hook is a maze of hybrid squalor near the ancient waterfront opposite Governor's Island, with dirty highways climbing the hill from the wharves to that higher ground where the decayed lengths of Clinton and Court Streets lead off towards the Borough Hall. Its houses are mostly of brick, dating from the first quarter of the middle of the 19th century, and some of the obscure alleys and byways have that alluring antique flavour which conventional reading leads us to call Dickensian. The population is a hopeless tangle and enigma, Syrian, Spanish, Italian and Negro elements impinging upon one another, and fragments of Scandinavian and American belts lying not far distant. It is a babble of sound and filth, and sends out strange cries to answer the lapping of oily waves at its grimy piers, and the monstrous organ litanies of the harbour whistles. Here long ago, a bright picture dwelt, with clear-eyed mariners on the lower streets and homes of taste and substance, where the larger houses line the hill. One can trace the relics of this former happiness in the trim shapes of the buildings, the occasional graceful churches, and the evidences of original art and background in bits of detail here and there. A worn flight of steps, a battered doorway, a wormy pair of decorative columns or pilasters, or a fragment of one screen space with bent and rusted iron railing. The houses are generally in solid blocks, and now and then a many-windowed cupola arises to tell of days when the households of captains and shipowners watched the sea. From this tangle and material of spiritual putrescence and blasphemies of an hundred dialects assail the sky, hordes of prowlers reel shouting and singing along the lanes and thoroughfares, occasional furtive hands suddenly extinguish lights and pull down curtains, and swarthy, sin-pitted faces disappear from windows when visitors pick their way through. Policemen despair of order or reform, 
and seek rather to erect barriers protecting the outside world from the contagion. The clang of the patrol is answered by a kind of spectral silence, and such prisoners as are taken are never communicative. Visible offences are as varied as the local dialects, and run the gamut from the smuggling of rum and prohibited aliens through diverse stages of lawlessness and obscure vice, to murder and mutilation in their most abhorrent guises. That these visible affairs are not more frequent is not to the neighbourhood's credit, unless the power of concealment be an art of demanding credit. More people enter Red Hook than leave it, or at least than leave it by the landward side, and those who are not loquacious are the likeliest to leave. Malone found in this state of things a faint stench of secrets more terrible than any of the sins denounced by citizens and bemourned by priests and philanthropists. He was conscious, as one who united imagination with scientific knowledge, that modern people under lawless conditions tend uncannily to repeat the darkest instinctive patterns of primitive half-ape savagery in their daily life and ritual observances. And he had often viewed with an anthropologist's shudder, the chanting, cursing processions of blare-eyed and pock-marked young men which wound their way along in the dark small hours of morning. One saw groups of these youths incessantly, sometimes in leering vigils on street corners, sometimes in doorways playing eerily on cheap instruments of music, sometimes in stupefied dozens or in decent dialogues around cafeteria tables near Borough Hall and sometimes in whispering converses around dingy taxicabs drawn up at the high stops of crumbling and closely shuttered old houses. They chilled and fascinated him more than he dared confess to his associates on the force, for he seemed to see in them some monstrous thread of secret continuity, some fiendish, cryptical and ancient pattern utterly beyond and below the sordid mass of facts and habits and haunts listed with such conscientious technical care by the police. They must be, he felt inwardly, the heirs of some shocking and primordial tradition, the sharers of debased and broken scraps from cults and ceremonies older than mankind. Their coherence and definiteness suggested it, and it showed in the singular suspicion of order which lurked beneath their squalid disorder. He had not read in vain such treatises as Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, and knew that up to recent years there had certainly survived among peasants and furtive folk a frightful and clandestine system of assemblies and orgies, descended from dark religions antedating the Aryan world and appearing in popular legends as black masses and witches' sabbaths. That these hellish vestiges of old Turanian Asiatic magic and fertility cults were even now wholly dead, he could not for a moment suppose, and he frequently wondered how much older and how much blacker than the very worst of the muttered tales some of them might really be. 3. It was the case of Robert Sudam which took Malone to the heart of things in Red Hook. Sudam was a lettered recluse of ancient Dutch family, possessed originally of barely independent means, 
and inhabiting the spacious but ill-preserved mansion which his grandfather had built in Flatbush, when that village was little more than a pleasant group of colonial cottages surrounding the steepled and ivy-clad reformed church with its iron-railed yard of Netherlandish gravestones. In his lonely house, set back from Martens Street amidst a yard of venerable trees, Sudam had read and brooded for some six decades, except for a period a generation before, when he had sailed for the old world and remained there out of sight for eight years. He could afford no servants, and would admit but few visitors to his absolute solitude, and receiving his rare acquaintances in one of the three ground-floor rooms, which he kept in order, a vast, high-ceilinged library, whose walls were solidly packed with tattered books of ponderous, archaic, and vaguely repellent aspect. The growth of the town and its final absorption in the Brooklyn district had meant nothing to Soydom, and he had come to mean less and less to the town. Elderly people still pointed him out on the streets, but to most of the recent population he was merely a queer, corpulent old fellow, whose unkempt white hair, stubbly beard, shiny black clothes, and gold-headed cane earned him an amused glance and nothing more. Malone did not know him by sight till duty called him to the case, but he had heard of him indirectly as a really profound authority on medieval superstition, and had once idly meant to look up an old out-of-print pamphlet of his on the Kabbalah and the Forster's legend which a friend had quoted from memory. Soydem became a case when his distant and only relative sought court pronouncements on his sanity. Their action seemed sudden to the outside world, but was really undertaken only after prolonged observation and sorrowful debate. It was based on certain old changes in his speech and habits wild references to impending wonders and unaccountable hauntings of disreputable Brooklyn neighbourhoods. He had been growing shabbier and shabbier with the years, and now prowled about like the veritable mendicant, seen only occasionally by humiliated friends in subway stations, or loitering on the benches around Borough Hall, in conversation with groups of swarthy, evil-looking strangers. When he spoke, it was to babble of unlimited powers almost within his grasp, and to repeat, with knowing Leah's such mystic words or names as Sephiroth, Asmodai, and Samiel. The court action revealed that he was using up his income and wasting his principal in the purchase of curious tomes imported from London and Paris, and in the maintenance of a squalid basement flat in the Red Hook district, where he spent nearly every night receiving odd delegations of mixed rowdies and foreigners, and apparently conducting some kind of ceremonial service behind the green blinds of secretive windows. Detectives assigned to follow him reported strange cries and chants, and prancing of feet flittering out from these nocturnal rites, and shuddered at their peculiar ecstasy and abandon despite the commonness of weird orgies in that sodden section. When However, the matter came to a hearing, so Edom managed to preserve his liberty. Before the judge his manner grew urbane and reasonable, and he freely admitted the queerness of demeanour and extravagant cast of language into which he had fallen through excessive devotion to study and research. 
He was, he said, engaged in the investigation of certain details of European tradition, which required the closest contact with foreign groups and their songs and folk dances. The notion that any low, secret society was preying upon him, as hinted by his relatives, was obviously absurd and showed how sadly limited was their understanding of him and his work. Triumphing with his calm explanations, he was suffered to depart unhindered, and the paid detectives of the Soydams, Colliers, and Van Brunts were withdrawn in resigned disgust. It was here that an alliance of federal inspectors and police, Malone with them, entered the case. The law had watched the Soydam action with interest, and had in many instances been called upon to aid the private detectives. In this work, it developed that Soydam's new associates were among the blackest and most vicious criminals of Red Hook's devious lanes, and that at least a third of them were known and repeated offenders in the matter of thievery, disorder, and the importation of illegal immigrants. Indeed, it would not have been too much to say that the old scholar's particular circle coincided almost perfectly with the worst of the organised cliques which smuggled ashore certain nameless and unclassified Asian dregs wisely turned back by Elias Island. In the teeming rookeries of Parker Place, since renamed where Suidam had his basement flat, there had grown up a very unusual colony of unclassified, slant-eyed folk who used the Arabic alphabet, but were eloquently repudiated by the great mass of Syrians in and around Atlantic Avenue. They could all have been deported for lack of credentials, but legalism is slow-moving, and one does not disturb Red Hook unless publicity forces one to. These creatures attended a tumble-down stone church, used Wednesdays as a dance hall, which reared its gothic buttresses near the vilest part of the waterfront. It was nominally Catholic, but priests throughout Brooklyn denied the place all standing and authenticity, and policemen agreed with them when they listened to the noises it emitted at night. Malone used to fancy he heard terrible cracked bass notes from a hidden organ far underground when the church stood empty and unlighted, whilst all observers dreaded the shrieking and drumming which accompanied the visible services. Suidam, when questioned, said he thought the ritual was some remnant of Nestorian Christianity, tinctured with the shamanism of Tibet. Most of the people, he conjectured, were of Mongoloid stock, originating somewhere in or near Kurdistan, and Malone could not help recalling that Kurdistan is the land the Yezidis, last survivors of the Persian devil worshippers. However, this may have been, the stir of the Soydam investigation made it clear that these unauthorised newcomers were flooding Red Hook in increasing numbers, entering through some marine conspiracy unreached by revenue officers and harbour police, overrunning Parker Place and rapidly spreading up the hill and welcomed with curious fraternalism by the other assorted denizens of the region. Their squat figures and characteristic squinting physiognomies grotesquely combined with flashy American clothing, appeared more and more numerously among the loafers and nomad gangsters of the Borough Hall section, till at length it was deemed necessary to compute their numbers, ascertain their sources and occupations, and find, if possible, a way to round them up 
and deliver them to the proper immigration authorities. To this task Malone was assigned by agreement of federal and city forces, and as he commenced his canvas of Red Hook he felt poised upon the brink of nameless terrors, with the shabby, unkempt figure of Robert Soydem as arch-fiend and adversary. 4. Police methods are varied and ingenious. Malone, through unostentatious rambles, carefully casual conversations, well-timed offers of hip-pocket liquor, and judicious dialogues with frightened prisoners, learned many isolated facts about the movement whose aspect had become so menacing. The newcomers were indeed Kurds, but of a dialect obscure and puzzling to exact philology. Such of them as worked lived mostly as dockhands and unlicensed peddlers, though frequently serving in Greek restaurants and tending corner newsstands. Most of them, however, had no visible means of support, and were obviously connected with underworld pursuits, of which smuggling and bootlegging were the least indescribable. They had come in steamships, apparently tramp freighters, and had been unloaded by stealth on moonless nights in rowboats which stole under a certain wharf and followed a hidden canal to a secret subterranean pool beneath a house. This wharf, canal and house Malone could not locate, for the memories of his informants were exceedingly confused, while their speech was to a great extent beyond even the ablest interpreters, nor could he gain any real data on the reasons for their systematic importation. They were reticent about the exact spot from which they had come, and were never sufficiently off guard to reveal the agencies which had sought them out and directed their course. Indeed, they developed something like an acute fright when asked the reasons for their presence. Gangsters of other breeds were equally taciturn, and the most that could be gathered was that some god or great priesthood had promised them unheard of powers and supernatural glories and rulerships in a strange land. The attendance of both newcomers and old gangsters at Soydem's closely guarded nocturnal meetings was very regular, and the police soon learned that the erstwhile recluse had leased additional flats to accommodate such guests as knew his password, at last occupying three entire houses and permanently harbouring many of his queer companions. He spent but little time now at his flatbush home, apparently going and coming only to obtain and return books, and his face and manner had attained an appalling pitch of wildness. Malone twice interviewed him, but was each time brusquely repulsed. He knew nothing, he said, of any mysterious plots or movements, and had no idea how the Kurds could have entered or what they wanted. His business was to study undisturbed the folklore of all the immigrants of the district, a business with which policemen had no legitimate concern. Malone mentioned his admiration for Soydem's old brochure on the Kabbalah and other myths, but the old man's softening was only momentary. He sensed an intrusion and rebuffed his visitor in no uncertain way, till Malone withdrew disgusted and turned to other channels of information. What Malone would have unearthed could have worked continuously on the case, we shall never know. As it was, a stupid conflict between city and federal authority suspended the investigations for several months, during which the detective was busy with other assignments. But at no time did he lose interest, 
or fail to stand amazed at what began to happen to Robert Soydam. Just at the time when a wave of kidnappings and disappearance spread its excitement over New York, the unkempt scholar embarked upon a metamorphosis as startling as it was absurd. One day he was seen near Borough Hall with a clean-shaven face, well-trimmed hair and tastefully immaculate attire. And on every day thereafter, some obscure improvement was noticed in him. He maintained his new fastidiousness without interruption, added to it an unwanted sparkle of eye and crispness of speech, and began little by little to shed the corpulence which had so long deformed him. Now, frequently taken for less than his age, he acquired an elasticity of step and buoyancy of demeanour to match the new tradition, and showed a curious darkening of the hair, which somehow did not suggest dye. As the months passed, he commenced to dress less and less conservatively, and finally astonished his new friends by renovating and redecorating his flat bush mansion, which he threw open in a series of receptions, summoning all the acquaintances he could remember, and extending a special welcome to the fully forgiven relatives who had so lately sought his restraint. Some attended through curiosity, others through duty, but all were suddenly charmed by the dawning grace and urbanity of the former hermit. He had, he asserted, accomplished most of his allotted work, and having just inherited some property from a half-forgotten European friend, was about to spend his remaining years in a brighter second youth which ease, care and diet had made possible to him. Less and less was he seen at Red Hook, and more and more did he move in the society to which he was born. Policemen noted a tendency of the gangsters to congregate at the old stone church and dance hall instead of at the basement flat in Parker Place. Though the latter, and its recent annexes still overflowed with noxious life. Then two incidents occurred, wide enough apart, but both of intense interest in the case as Malone envisaged it. One was a quiet announcement in the Eagle of Robert Soydum's engagement to Miss Cornelia Gerritsen of Bayside, a young woman of excellent position, and distantly related to the elderly bridegroom-elect, whilst the other was a raid on the dance hall church by city police, after a report that the face of a kidnapped child had been seen for a second at one of the basement windows. Malone had participated in this raid, and studied the place with much care when inside. Nothing was found. In fact, the building was entirely deserted when visited, but the sensitive Celt was vaguely disturbed by many things about the interior. There were crudely painted panels he did not like, panels which depicted sacred faces with peculiarly worldly and sardonic expressions, and which occasionally took liberties which even a layman's sense of decorum could scarcely countenance. Then, too, he did not relish the Greek inscription on the wall above the pulpit, an ancient incantation which he had once stumbled upon in Dublin college days, and which read, literally translated, O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades amongst the tombs, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, Giorgio Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favourably on our sacrifices. When he read this he shuddered, 
and thought vaguely of the cracked bass organ notes he fancied he had heard beneath the church on certain nights. He shuddered again at the rust about the rim of the metal basin which stood in the altar, and paused nervously when his nostrils seemed to detect a curious and ghastly stench from somewhere in the neighbourhood. That organ memory haunted him, and he explored the basement with particular assiduity before he left. The place was very hateful to him, yet, after all, were the blasphemous panels and inscriptions more than mere crudities perpetrated by the ignorant. By the time of Soydem's wedding, the kidnapping epidemic had become a popular newspaper scandal. Most of the victims were young children of the lowest classes, but the increasing number of disappearances had worked up a sentiment of the strongest fury. Journals clamoured for action from the police, and once more the Butler Street station sent its men over Red Hook for clues, discoveries, and criminals. Malone was glad to be on the trail again, and took pride in a raid on one of Soydem's Parker Place houses. There, indeed, no stolen child was found, despite the tales of screams and the red sash picked up in the area way but the paintings and rough inscriptions on the peeling walls of most of the rooms, and the primitive chemical laboratory in the attic, all helped to convince the detective that he was on the track of something tremendous. The paintings were appalling. Hideous monsters of every shape and size, and parodies on human outlines which cannot be described. The writing was in red and varied from Arabic to Greek, Roman and Hebrew letters. Malone could not read much of it, but what he did decipher was portentous and cabalistic enough. One frequently repeated motto was in a sort of Hebraized Hellenistic Greek, and suggested the most terrible demon evocations of the Alexandrian decadence. Circles and pentagrams loomed on every hand, and told indubitably of the strange beliefs and aspirations of those who dwelt so squalidly here. In the cellar, however, the strangest thing was found. A pile of genuine gold ingots covered carelessly with a piece of burlap, and bearing upon their shining surfaces the same weird hieroglyphics which also adorned the walls. During the raid, the police encountered only a passive resistance from the squinting orientals that swarmed from every door. Finding nothing relevant, they had to leave all as it was. But the precinct captain wrote Soydem a note advising him to look closely to the character of his tenants and protégés in view of the growing public clamour. This has been The Horror at Red Hook, Part 1, by H.P. Lovecraft. This episode was made with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page podcast, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support the Darkest Page, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page i have been your host and i wish you pleasant dreams